from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Bush. As crisp and cold as a mountain stream. It has the same great taste it's always had. The music you're hearing in this Bush ad was not composed with beer in mind. It was a pre-recorded track sitting on the digital server of a production music company, where the ad agency found the music and paid a fee and downloaded it and then edited it into their commercial. By the way, we listen to that kind of ready-made stock music all the time, and not just in commercials, in movies, on TV, in video games, on radio shows, podcasts, you name it. And we don't realize it. I didn't, certainly. But now I know because there are some obsessives, of course, who love this kind of background music, anonymous and generic, especially the stock music of the past. And that includes my colleague, Evan Chung, who is here with me in the studio. So what, do we, what is the correct name for that kind of music? Well, you can call it stock music or production music. The preferred term is probably library music because the companies that produce this music, they're called music libraries. And uh, library music is especially the term you'll hear used when talking about what a lot of people think is kind of the artistic heyday, which is basically the 60s, 70s, and 80s. As so many things are fashionable from that era in so many different genres and media and disciplines. Well, that's a period where you had some of the best musicians and composers in Europe virtually anonymously creating just thousands of these pieces of music that kind of run the gamut stylistically. They can be catchy or funky and psychedelic. A lot of it is just plain weird and experimental. Yeah. And it's almost entirely European at this right. point. Not very many American libraries. Was there some special demand for it then? Uh, I mean, obviously there were movies and TV shows in the 50s. Well, in the 60s and 70s is when you see this huge explosion in exploitation filmmaking. You so mean this, just really B-movies? Yeah, B-movies playing at these you know, grindhouse theaters right. and drive-ins where they just needed a steady stream of right. cheap, kind of schlocky genre films. And so they needed cheap music for their cheap movies, and that's where library music came in. Like spaghetti westerns? Obviously, that was famously Ennio Marconi, but did, did those kinds of genre uh, have, have library music? Yeah, I can play you some examples of that. Please. Well, there's crime dramas... sci-fi movies, horror films, lots of kung fu movies. That's pretty cool, actually. One really big market was porn. Of course. Um, I think I get why you like this and why people like this. Partly, it's just... Taken out of context of a film, it's it's amusing and interesting, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because it was composed out of context. There was no specific film right. that they made this for. Right. So uh, as a collector, uh, do you just download digital versions or, or uh, are there actual 
physical LPs. Well, there were physical LPs produced, but they didn't sell them in stores. The public never saw the records. It was just given to filmmakers as a way to test out the different tracks they might use in a film. Um, So filmmakers would listen to the records, pick out the tracks they liked, call up the library, tell them I want this song and pay a fee, and then the library would send over the master tapes. And they probably pressed very few of those, which probably, I'm guessing, makes them very valuable today. Right, and nobody knew they existed, really, unless you were in the industry. And they're not very well documented. So every day, people are unearthing new ones, and that's part of the thrill of being a collector of library records. So these were like music composition factories where, where composers were just... (laughs) <laughs> day in and day out, composing generic music around a theme uh, here, porn today and 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 gangster movie tomorrow. How, how did that work? Well, there's a new book out that explains part of how that process worked. It's called Unusual Sounds, The Hidden History of Library Music. It's by this guy named David Hollander, who's a very serious, obsessive library music collector. And he's interviewed dozens of library composers from this era from around the world including a British composer named Keith Mansfield. He's kind of a superstar of of that era of library music. So I talked to Keith Mansfield, this composer, as well as David Hollander, the author of this book. And first I asked David how composers were assigned these themes to compose. Great. Let's hear it. Typically, the way it would work is that a library would come up with a brief where they would have a description of given moods that they wanted to create musically, and then they would hand them to a composer and and give them really free reign to do whatever they wanted within those guidelines. And sometimes the briefs were just very general, very uh, almost like bullet point briefs, uh, just the title and a couple of... Uh, just a sentence describing it. The label head would say, today we're going to do music for industrial and scientific applications. I want something swelling for the building of a building. Or, you know, following a scientific experiment. I want a track that gives me the feeling of uh, traveling in a train. So it really was about creating soundtracks for films that did not yet exist. A very easy album to write was an album called Olympiad 2000, which was the first album that Peter Cox got me to do for KPM Library. And that was his vision of of an Olympics in the future. The empty stadium, huge stadium, but it was empty. Or then the full stadium with with all the activity and energy going on there. Poetry in motion would be something balletic, if you like. Then the rugged endeavor where it's sweating, that sort of thing, that might be the marathon, it might be anything. But things like that would just be triggers uh, for you to get started. And once you get started, you've got to just go with it. You're under pressure because you can't procrastinate. You've got to every day come up with one or two pieces of music. I mean, I've got to get a composition idea, score it for the orchestra, then next day do another one. Sometimes I was doing three in a day, you know. Nobody's interested in your excuses. You can't go in there, I didn't feel inspired, so therefore I didn't come up with as much music as I was supposed to. You'd be dead, you know. <laughs> You'd be out of the business immediately. So it had to be there, done that day, finished that night, whatever, and that made your mind up for you. 
I think it was a, a really compressed time frame. I think that they would walk into the studio and they do a session during the day and then they do a session at night. Normally, it would be four titles in a three-hour session. That would be the same thing if it was an orchestral session, big band session. You would have the equivalent of a house band where they were the same guys would be on your sessions. In the studio, as, mu as much as possible... You're giving them a flavor of what you want, but you don't overwrite. Of course, you've got a composition and you've got the, the framework and you've got the basic chord structure. But in a funky thing, no, you want, to, you want to give them as much room for their talent and for their personality to shine in your music. They'd all be in the studio with the strings, everyone there together. You do it all, all together. And it was, of course, it was great completely different world to the one you're going now when you just got yourself and a synthesizer and a computer. <laughs> there were certain rules in library. It isn't a film score, that is, you're not given specific timings where things are going to happen and you need to change the mood or go from quiet to loud and things like that or from slow to fast because there's an action or a fight going on. In live music, you have to start and sustain a mood for however long the recording is. If it's two minutes, then you sustain that mood. If an editor wants it to change after 35 seconds, he cuts into another piece of music to do that. What you've got to do, though, is sustain the atmosphere without it just becoming boring. I think it's important to note that while these composers were toiling away in anonymity, they were not toiling away in obscurity because while they weren't necessarily named as the composers of this music, this music was really ubiquitous and widely used. Ah, the start of two weeks of top tennis in Wimbledon 85. The life I had was fantastic. I, I had so much money, I could go anywhere, no knew my face. I just loved the fact of being anonymous. They were happy to eschew the fame of commercial music just in order to keep working. And, and they were really able to work in a way that commercial musicians are unable to at this point. Look, I was a commercial arranger for the record companies. I had my own orchestra on CBS Records, but they really wanted you to be one person, the, the person they were selling. They didn't want you to be all these different people. That, that wasn't who I wanted to be. I didn't just want to be one part of who I was. With library, you could write so much different music. It's as diverse as the spectrum of all musics. So if it exists musically, then there is a library analog to it. If you wanted you know, to find a record of South Pacific Islander music. You're going to find a library record that has that. I mean, I could write for a huge orchestra or I could write for just a bass, whatever I had to do. If I had to write for a hundred-voice choir... I'd never done it before, but that's what I would do. It's just one of those skills that you, you, you just had an innate sense of what was required, and you could do it. There is 
certain kinds of music where there's an inordinate amount of that kind of music. One example of that would be underwater music. There seems to be a lot more underwater records than there are underwater films. The only music that I would say is really not present is vocal music. Library music is, is overwhelmingly instrumental, but there are a handful of vocal records. There's one by Alan Parker and Madeline Bell, uh, a record called The Voice of Soul. You got what it takes, and I'm gonna take it. And I'll show you how, just how we can make it is a song on there called You've Got What It Takes. Just a really sweet soul song that uh, shows up in a number of porno films. Are you having a good time? I sure am. And you still trust me? Of course I do, doctor. I'd meet guys sometimes in the, uh, up in Denmark Street, whatever, and they'd say, oh, I saw that movie you do the weekend. I said, what movie was that? He said, you know, the Scandinavian one. I said, what Scandinavian music? He said, you know, you know, the one. I said, no idea what they're talking about. What it was, these film producers doing these soft porn films would give credit to the composer. If they used, say, a lot of my music in it, I'd suddenly get the credit for the music. Uh, they would just choose from the library, almost like to give their presentation, their film, a little bit of extra kudos, that, that specially commissioned score. They'd put their name there. Music composed Keith Mansfield. It wasn't just soft porn, but mostly it was porn. <laughs> but hey, people use music for whatever they want. I mean, it's in our world, uh, we write our music to be used by editors in whatever. We have no moral right on what they use it for. become quickly aware of the tracks that are eminently usable because they just work. There are many, many other tracks that are impossible to synchronize. You couldn't even really imagine a possible usage for it. That's library music that I'm especially interested in. There's a composer, for instance, named Giampiero Boneschi. He came to library music much later in life. He was an older guy, and he got his hands on a synthesizer. And he started to make these records of astrato, abstract electronic music. He did one record of sort of like lounge music where he does wordless vocals and electronics. When you listen to it, you think to yourself, how could anyone ever use this in anything? It's just too out there. There's no point in writing music if nobody's going to use it, because that means we all go broke. Because you don't get paid in live music, you do the music, you get paid if it gets used. You get paid by royalties. 
if they're earning their keep, it's a good library track because its editors have found it useful. But they're standout tracks that do the job they were supposed to, but then do jobs that nobody ever dreamed of. And I can tell you, one of my favorite pieces of music was what we used to call industrial music. Now, industrial, when we were doing it in the 60s and early 70s, was big music, sweaty music. It was to do with big industry. It was to do with oil tankers and big, big machinery and all that sort of thing. So the music was large scale. One of the guys I always ad ad admired, a guy called Johnny Pearson, he wrote a piece of music called Heavy Action. So this piece of music called Heavy Action did that perfectly, but it got picked up. So Heavy Action has been used in America for over 40 years as the Monday Night Football theme, and it sounds great. But it wasn't written for football, it was written to be an industrial piece of music. Now when I say that's a great piece of live music, that's because it did the job it was supposed to do originally, which was to be the industrial music, but it had something else as well which took it into uncharted territory and is so famous because of it. Themes International has two records that I think are very much of note called Drama Suite Volume 1 and Drama Suite Volume 2. Those two records of Alan Tews are absolutely superlative records. And there's a track called The Big One that everyone in the world at this point would recognize as the theme to the people's court. I'm finding out about library LPs I've never heard of every single day. I just think the idea that there's this massive pile, this mountain of music out there that really no one's really scratched the surface of is interesting to today's music listener. I mean, honestly, it appears to be endless. The whole thing about the live music, it may not have had the glamour of, of being a film composer or of being a pop star or whatever, but that's not what I wanted. I mean, I just wanted the opportunity to be all the different people I could be as a composer. I could be serious, I could be humorous, I could be evil, I could be nice and innocent, I could do anger music, I'd do all sorts of things. So that was very fulfilling as a, as a composer and it kept me interested for my whole musical lifetime. You can read David Hollander's interviews with Keith Mansfield and some of his fellow ubiquitous, unheralded composers in his new book, Unusual Sounds, The Hidden History of Library Music. The book also reproduces some of the great library music album covers, which are really all the more lovable given that the records weren't even meant to be sold. Studio 360's Evan Chung produced our story. Coming up, a tale of signals crossed and a phone call you weren't supposed to hear. Our client wishes it to look like simple robbery. No, don't worry. Everything is going to be okay. All right, then. Be sure to... Oh. Oh. Sorry, wrong number. 
a new kind of drama that shocked Americans in 1943. Oh, how awful! How unspeakably awful! That's next on Studio 360. There are some very good scripted fiction podcasts these days, like Homecoming and Limetown and The Bright Sessions. After a 70-year hiatus since the previous golden age for American audio drama, the 1940s. And one of the best of those radio shows was broadcast 75 years ago in 1943. It was called Sorry Wrong Number. And a few years later, it was made into a movie starring Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. The original play, an audio drama with an audio premise, was by a young writer named Lucille Fletcher. Fletcher died in 2000 at age 88. So to tell the story of Sorry Wrong Number, we've got somebody who knew the medium and Lucille Fletcher intimately. My name is Dorothy Herman. I'm Lucille Fletcher's older daughter. And a scholar. My name is Steve Darnall. I'm a radio historian and the host of two weekly radio shows devoted to that period known as the Golden Age of Radio. Radio was very important to me. I used to listen to it all the time. And so as a child, I listened to The Shadow. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Uh, I listened to Inner Sanctum, which just it shivers up and down my spine. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host to welcome you in through the squeaking door to another half hour of horror. Suspense. Suspense was an anthology show that ran on CBS radio from 1942 until the very end of the golden age of radio in the fall of 1962. Uh, I think the the narrator of Suspense very early on in the show's run said it was about presenting a precarious situation and then withholding the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with Sorry, Wrong Number and the performance of Agnes Moorhead. We again hope to keep you in Suspense. And so the story begins with the main character, Mrs. Elbert Stevenson, trying to reach her husband on the telephone. She's an invalid, so she can't leave her bedroom. Please. Operator, I've been dialing Murray Hill 70093 now for the last three quarters of an hour, and the line is always busy. I don't see how it could be busy that long. Will you try it for me, please? I'll be glad to try that number for you. One moment, please. And she overhears two gentlemen plotting this murder on the telephone. Our client wishes it to look like simple robbery. Don't worry. Everything is going to be okay. All right, then. Be sure to... Oh! Oh! Oh, how awful, how unspeakably awful. And the entire show is based around the hysteria of the main character. These two men, they were cold-blooded fiends, and they were going to murder somebody, some poor innocent woman who was all alone in a house near a bridge, and we've got to stop them, we've got to... What number were you calling, please? Well, that doesn't matter. This was a wrong number, and you dialed it for me, and we've got to find out what it was immediately. What number did you call? Oh, why are you so Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the script, wrote Mrs. Stevenson as, frankly, not a terribly likable woman. My mother came from a working-class family in Brooklyn 
and she won a scholarship to Vassar uh, College. And as a poor scholarship student, she felt that these very rich girls who came to school uh, in their limousines, uh, she felt that they snubbed her. And to make matters worse, she had a boyfriend who was an upper-class young man uh, who was studying at Dartmouth. And he had a mother who was very much like Mrs. Stevenson. And she looked down on my mother, and this made my mother very miserable. So I think that she was taking a revenge on a lot of people uh, in her radio play. Now, I want to trace that call. It's my civic duty, it's your civic duty to trace that call and apprehend those dangerous killers. And if you won't... I will connect you with the chief operator. Please! There is what would appear to be a fairly mundane sound effect, which is the picking up and dialing of a telephone. The sound people, they had to perform their tasks by listening to Agnes Moorhead. Oh, dear. And as she got increasingly agitated and panicked, they had to change the manner in which they picked up and dialed the telephone. Mrs. Stevenson becomes aware that the murder she overheard being plotted is her own murder. And so by the end of the story, when she's in an absolute state of terror, you can hear that in the way the phone is being dialed. I can hear him. Oh, I can hear him. He's coming near When she's attacked in her bedroom, Agnes Moorhead screams. And she worked it out so that her scream would be the exact pitch of the whistle of the train that was going by her home. I think it was one of the first times that someone had had the audacity to go on radio, this national network, and present a story in which the killers get away. I think my mother took delight in the end of Mrs. Stevenson, that she's trapped by her own uh, invalidism and her own neuroticism and also the fact that nobody will believe her. It was a, a brutal message to send to radio audiences in 1943, which is sometimes people simply get murdered and the police cannot stop it. Police Department, Martin speaking. Police Department, Martin speaking. Oh, Police Department? Police Department. I'm sorry, I must have got the wrong number. But, but don't worry, everything's okay. By the way, there's a good chance you've seen more of Lucille Fletcher's scary work. Another of her radio plays became one of the memorable episodes of The Twilight Zone, the one where the young woman, played by Inger Stevens, is driving across the country and has an accident and keeps seeing this spooky hitchhiker. I believe you're going my way. Our story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. 
Sorry Wrong Number is now part of the National Recording Registry, an honor bestowed by the Library of Congress. Coming up, one of the best perks of the presidency isn't flying on Air Force One or weekending at Camp David. Carter may have watched pound for pound the most movies. Nixon watched a lot of messed up stuff. One man's quest to track down every movie ever screened at the White House Theater. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. And it'll be 20 years probably before uh, we verse, uh, we reverse some of these major trends. Okay, everybody, I got to get to Star Wars. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That was President Obama abruptly ending a press conference in 2015 to go watch Star Wars The Force Awakens, which was being screened at the White House. If you're president of the United States and want to see a movie, of course, you don't need to go to the multiplex or wait until it shows up on a streaming service or cable TV. You get a print sent directly from Hollywood to the White House and a projectionist to run the film. That's what every president since Woodrow Wilson has done. Although it was Franklin Roosevelt who, in 1942, converted a a cloakroom in the East Wing into a little movie theater. And to this day, that is where presidents go to see any movie they want. A current release, a classic, occasionally a movie that's still in the works. Matt Novak is a writer at Gizmodo. In 2012, he became obsessed with cataloging every movie watched by every president of the United States as president at the White House or in the theater at Camp David, or that one time a POTUS actually did go to a D.C. multiplex. To do his work, he began submitting Freedom of Information Act requests, also known as FOIA. Turns out there are a lot of gaps in the presidential cinematic record. So Matt has been meticulously assembling his list movie by movie. So far, he has mostly focused on the presidents of the last half of the 20th century, Eisenhower to Clinton. And he wouldn't have gotten as far as he has without the help of one guy, a projectionist named Paul Fisher. Paul Fisher um, became White House projectionist as his full-time job in 1953, uh, just as Eisenhower was coming into office. And he was just the the projectionist for the White House uh, from 1953 to, I believe, 86. Wow. And It's like the, the film The Butler, only just the movie guy instead of the butler who, who's there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, he just kept these methodical notes of not only every movie that the presidents watched, both in the White House and at Camp David, but who was with them. Oh, um, wow. So we know, you know... Uh, when Eisenhower's grandkids were watching the movie with them. And Eisenhower, at at the beginning in 53, screened it where? Did the White House Theater yet exist? Yeah, as I understand it, you know, so the first movie screening inside the White House was 1915. And that was President Wilson. Yes. Famously, yes, infamously. Yes. Showing Birth of a Nation, which was based on the book The Klansman, you know, this glorification of the Ku Klux Klan. At the time, I haven't 
yet figured out where they screened it in the White House, but it most certainly wasn't in where the the projection room sits today. The person who gets the most credit for sort of revamping the East Room of the White House and and turning this what was essentially a storage closet, you know, coat room into the proper theater is FDR. Uh, but Hoover, just before him in the early 30s, uh, was the first to install permanent projectors uh, in that room. And the pictures I've seen of it, I, I was looking actually last year at, at photographs of it and was surprised to see uh, how kind of interestingly kitschy, vulgar it is. I mean, to my <laughs> eyes, that this red upholstery, red walls. Yeah, well, the last redesign, as far as I'm aware, was during the George W. Bush administration. Before that... Um, you can see sort of these beige chairs and everything sort of beige. Yeah. So let's uh, go through the what you have been able to piece together from the about the cinematic tastes of the presidents, starting with Eisenhower. What did he watch? What kinds of movies did he like to watch? Um, by far, his favorites were westerns. There's a movie called The Gunfighter uh, with Gregory Peck sure. that was released in 1950 that he watched in 1953. All right, put up your hands. <laughs> Now, drop your guns. I think of Eisenhower. I mean, he, he was born in the, you know, plains of Kansas in the 19th century. So, I mean, it, he was not very far from what the Westerns were depicting. Did you see that? Yes, sir. He drew first. So, uh, John F. Kennedy, who, of course, was almost like a, a movie version of a president, what, what did he watch? The first movie he actually watched while in office uh, was Spartacus. But he watched it by sneaking away to a movie theater. And we know this, you know, the AP has a photo of him, uh, you know, getting into a car after, you know, going to see Spartacus in downtown Washington. Right. And he went to such uh, lengths to see it, given that it was, especially when it came out in the late 50s, this highly political allegory. In every city and province, lists of the disloyal have been compiled. Tomorrow they will learn the cost of their terrible folly, their treason. He watched a surprising number of foreign films. La Dolce Vita comes to mind. La vado a prendere io, stiano tranquilli, la porto qui subito, dammi le scarpe, dammele, vengo subito. The foreign films, so do we do we assume, or am I, this may be an unfair stereotype, that Jacqueline uh, Kennedy was pushing Fellini and, and those kinds of films on him? That might have been fair. I think that, you know, if you take a look at some of the films like General Della Rovere. It's almost always with the First Lady. Um, and that's sort of one of the most fascinating things about the catalogs that Paul Fisher kept. You know, you know who he watched them with. Now, it's I don't think it's entirely fair to say that it was just the First Lady's influence. For instance, you know, there's a, a minor Inger Bergman film called The Devil's Eye from 1959 that he just watched with Peter Lawford. There's something uh, slightly mysterious you found in Paul Fisher's logs uh, during the Kennedy term about a, a British movie that I had never, ever heard of. Uh, are we talking about Espresso Bongo? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I can't even find a copy of the film. Um, I'd love to see it. I looked it up, and it's apparently this satirical rock and roll musical uh, released in 59 starring Lawrence Harvey and the actual pop singer Cliff Richard. So uh, talk to me about why that 
movies stuck out to you? Paul Fisher, the projectionist of the White House, kept these meticulous logs and, and very dutifully uh, would write who was in attendance at these screenings. Well, there was one screening, this Espresso Bongo, uh, when the First Lady happened to be out of town and it just said the President and one guest. Um, so that's uh, we take that for what whatever that's worth. And, and knowing what we know of John F. Kennedy's uh, predilections, uh, it's hard not to imagine that nameless guest wasn't, uh, I don't know, let's say Marilyn Monroe, but who he could have been anybody, you know? <laughs> could have, it honestly could have been anybody. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to guess that uh, Mr. Fisher was being discreet. Yeah. Was Lyndon Johnson a, a much of a movie watcher? I, I, I would kind of think not, but what do I know? No, he was not. He he had, I think, and this is just my speculation, I think he just, based on what I've read, had way too much nervous energy. He, he couldn't sit still for that long. His favorite movie was a propaganda movie about himself, um, <laughs> USIA, United States Information Agency uh, film called The President, narrated by Gregory Peck. But who is this man who sits by the light in the White House? Who is the man who sits with documents on his desk grief in his heart and the world on his shoulders Lyndon B. Johnson now the 36th president of the United States of America I haven't counted how many times he watched it exactly but it was you know more than half a dozen Whoa, at least and really? probably more that's so, kind of, yeah, that's, oh that, yeah that's sort of sad very sad <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's sad I mean he, he did watch movies like The Graduate Mrs. Robinson you're trying to seduce me <laughs> Uh, Barbarella. Really? You're very pretty, pretty, pretty. My name isn't pretty, pretty. It's Barbarella. Just those two simple data points you've just given me. Lyndon Johnson sitting there watching The Graduate. Lyndon Johnson sitting there watching Barbarella. This super sexy sci-fi film. My, my day is made. I, I just love imagining that. <laughs> That's the fun of this. Yeah. R- Richard Nixon's a taste you have described as spooky. Talk about his spooky taste he just watched a lot of perverse films um, right n- now he, now he watched a lot of movies just in general um, but he also watched some really s- dark and strange ones so like like what well there's one called uh well in the u.s it was released as what the peeper saw he stole a cat killed it after torturing it it turns me on horrifying and it, it depicts this homicidal 12-year-old boy uh, who murdered his mother and, you know, wants to kill his stepmother. And he has this psychosexual relationship with his stepmother. It's very strange. Why did you take your clothes off in front of the child? He's not the child! Why did you take your clothes off in front of the child, Elise? Nixon watched it. He sat down and watched the whole thing. I mean, how did he even, like, come across that to say, yeah, I want to watch uh, what the peeper saw, you know? As I understand it, Paul Fisher, who was the White House projectionist at the time, would sort of come to learn the tastes of the various presidents and would offer, you know, up the different movies that they had from all the various major studios. So how what the peeper saw got to Paul Fisher to in front of Nixon's eyes, I can't say for sure. But the fact that there are enough weird movies in the list, you know, other ones are like The Collector. It's about a man who collects women and right. kidnaps them and puts them in his basement. 
How long are you going to keep me here? I don't know. So yeah, Nixon watched a lot of messed up stuff. Uh, Oliver Stone has said, uh, and I don't know if this is true, and I don't know if you know, for, based on your research of this, but the movie Patton, starring George C. Scott, came out uh, at the beginning of, was released at the beginning of April of 1970. Uh, Nixon invades Cambodia at the end of April, early May 1970, and Stone suggests that one led to the other. I don't want to get any messages saying that we are holding our position. We're not holding anything. We are advancing constantly, and we're not interested in holding on to anything except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose, and we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You know, in the 70s, it came out that in the press that Nixon had watched Patton a dozen times while the illegal invasion of Cambodia was happening. Based on the records that you know we have, it looks like it was closer to three times during his entire presidency, twice uh, during the week of the start of huh. the invasion of Cambodia. So, yeah. what that suggests possibly that he watched it right as he was essentially invading twice is it was more like a a, a cheerleading, stiffening his spine, like exactly. I'm going to do this. Yep. You know? right. Yep, a sort of a. a a pump-up song before the the big right. game or something, right. perversely. Um, Gerald Ford was not president very long. Was he a movie buff at, at the White House or not? As best I can tell, he slept through almost all the movies that they screened at the White House. But Carter may have watched pound for pound the most movies uh, of any president. I think he, based on a current count, something like 480 movies in, in four years, which yeah. I think wow. is a above even the two-term presidents. Now, it's like a two, two or three a week, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's, he was watching quite a few. Um, but he mixed in a lot of old movies uh, along with, with the latest releases. You know, sometimes they saw him in advance. Carter had Francis Ford Coppola uh, at the White House to screen Apocalypse Now before they had even finished it. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. And Carter, um, during the big Camp David Accords uh, meeting in February of 1978, Carter sat down and watched the first Star Wars with Anwar Sadat. And I haven't been able to find out much about that screening, unfortunately, but it's... It's weird to think of uh, two world leaders watching Star Wars together. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and, yeah. and and imagining so. who, who, which of them thinks, which of them are the Empire or the Rebels, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you've written about uh, Ronald Reagan watching uh, a famous TV movie at Camp David. It's called The Day After. People who I've spoken with who were around when when it aired on on ABC it was this really important cultural touchstone for them it takes place in Kansas and there's a nuclear war with the Soviet Union Reagan's published diaries you know give us some insight into what he was thinking you know about it and he said it was powerfully done. You know, it left him really depressed, but that it would 
empower his message that we needed to stay strong in the Soviet Union. So the first Bush, George H.W., did he have anything peculiar like Richard Nixon or was he just a, a kind of plain vanilla kind of cineast? He, he watched a fair number of stuff that you'd remember like um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. The first Bush had Arnold Schwarzenegger and his then wife Maria Shriver – uh, over to see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. She caught me with another woman. Come on, you're French, you understand that? To be risen as a woman, that is French. To be caught, that is American. <laughs> President Bush and Barbara Bush started watching uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And turned it off after 10 minutes. Huh. Um, so... One of the great and notable films that came out during the Clinton administration was Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Did that get screened by the Clintons? Let me double check. Thank you. Got the big Lebowski. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. It doesn't look like it. Hmm. I submitted a Free of Information Act request for every film ever screened at the Clinton White House, and most of them are... At least a few dozen movies a year. 1996, uh, the year of that Monica Lewinsky, not when the news broke. When it was course, happening. But yeah, uh, yeah. when it was happening, we have, they released a record of three films being watched in that entire year. Um, so I have a hunch that perhaps he watched more than three films and that perhaps there's evidence of something going on there. Yes, um, Matt, the, and those films were? <laughs> uh, those films, well, uh, The Birdcage, April 3rd, 1996. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Uh, Chicano, which is a documentary from May 2nd, 1996. You still kissing the Democratic Party, thinking they're going to save you and they ain't going to do it. And Independence Day. From June 22nd, 1996. Welcome to Earth. And is Obama too recent? We don't have the the uh, records yet for what all the movies he watched? Yep. I believe we're still, I, th- I want to say uh, January 2021 is when those will become, you know, the, the uh, Obama Library will, which is maintained by the National Archives. I, I want to say January of 2021 is when. Yeah. Obama's records will be available for for Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, so now that you've immersed yourself in more than a century of presidential movie watching, did patterns emerge or like, wow, I didn't look at they all do this or or the, their tastes change later in their terms or anything like that? Um, I think the the thing that's been most interesting is baseball and westerns. You know, you could kind of guess that George W. Bush loved baseball movies. Uh, just as a former owner of the baseball team, I think that that makes sense. But even Eisenhower, the most watched movie in the Eisenhower White House was uh, Angels in the Outfield, the 1950s version. Huh. It was screened, I want to say four, maybe even five times in the Eisenhower White House. Can you speak to Angels? Certainly. Oh, Can we watch one? Why not? An angel sits in back of me in the dugout every day. Nothing more American, I suppose, um, than, than all the presidents watching baseball. But Westerns as well. I think that Westerns are a fascinating insight. Movies like High Noon, which uh, might be the most popular movie ever screened in the White House. Um, at least three or four presidents have watched it, probably more. It was supposedly Bill Clinton's favorite movie. Uh, George W. Bush watched it in the White House. So, I guess you all know why I'm here. 
I need deputies. I'll take all I can get. And you know, it's it's a fantastic movie, and it seem but it seems to really resonate with presidents in this sort of image of themselves as the reluctant hero, uh, someone who's who's not doesn't want the job, you know. Right. Well, I'm begging you, please let's go. I can't. Don't try to be a hero. You don't have to be a hero. Not for me. I'm not trying to be a hero. If you think I like this, you're crazy. Look, Amy, this is my town. I've got friends here. I'll swear in a bunch of special deputies, and with a posse behind me, maybe there won't even be any trouble. You know there'll be trouble. Then it's better to have it here. You know, this reluctant hero is, for whatever reason, uh, peek into the psyche of, of most modern American presidents. Right. So baseball, westerns, and in the case of Richard Nixon, creepy psycho thriller terror movies. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, we got exactly. it. Um, uh, Matt Novak, thank you very, very much. Well, thanks for having me. Look at that big hand move along near in high noon. You can find links to Matt Novak's articles about the movies shown at the White House at our site, studio360.org. And you can follow Matt's interesting, fascinating work in all kinds of realms of the past at paleofuture.gizmodo.com. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, a political artist who never expected his paintings to be hanging over your sofa. I one time did a painting of Obama burning the Constitution, and then I sold a ton of them. And I thought to myself, where do people hang this? Ultra-conservative painter John McNaughton tells me what a Trump presidency means for him. Next time in Studio 360, from Public Radio International, in association with Slate. <laughs>